0: Hey, 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 you. Yeah, you. Put down your coffee and crank up your volume. You're entering the Green Side. Now, here's your host,
1: Taylor Mooney. Welcome to the Greenside Podcast. This is your host, Taylor Mooney. In the studio today, I have me, Professor Wolfworth. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. you give you a quick bio, Professor Wolfworth. Professor Wolfworth is a member of the Government Department since 2000 at Dartmouth College. He teaches and conducts research in international relations with an emphasis in national security and foreign policy. Before coming here, Professor Wolforth taught at Princeton and Georgetown. He is the author editor of eight books and some 60 articles on topics ranging from the Cold War to contemporary U.S. grand strategy. He teaches courses in national politics, Russian foreign policy, leadership and grand strategy, violence and security, and decision-making. At Dartmouth, he served as the chair of the college's government department. Uh, Beyond Dartmouth... He's held fellowships at the Institute of Strategic Studies at Yale, the Center for National Security, Corporation Stanford, and the Hoover Institution. And I welcome you today. and We're going to discuss your book that I have over here, America Abroad, the United States Global Role in the 21st Century. So globalization's obviously been a huge topic because we currently um, have an administration that has at times spoken of a more regressive kind of you don't want to say isolationist but kind of l- tending to lean more towards that direction um, how do you see your book because you wrote this book back in 2013 2014 is that correct? Oh well actually it came
0: out in uh, in August of 2016 so August of this year August of this year okay yeah. fantastic so, not, not August of 2016 yeah August of this academic year
1: right okay yep. so you guys were, were working on it since then yep. now the, the biggest biggest I know Trump has played up to a lot of his supporters and that we're going to, you know, NATO's not paying their way or allies aren't paying their way. And I know I was listening to a speech you gave about your book at the University of Ottawa and you talked about the biggest argument against globalization a lot of times is, is the idea of free riding, but it's mainly an emotional argument. Can you kind of explain that a little bit, what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I can. So just to back up and give you a sense of the origins of the book, you know, we did start this book a long time before uh, anyone thought of Donald Trump as being a uh, leading candidate, much less a successful candidate for presidency of the United States. We started this book, wow, must have been five or six years ago, and uh, maybe more, because in the academic community, the uh, scholars in the United States who study U.S. foreign policy and study international security and write about grand strategy, probably a majority of them are sympathetic or even advocate a position: the United States should cut a, a cut a smaller role in world politics, and particularly should either uh, cut back on some or all, or even even all of these these alliances. And those scholars have developed a number of arguments. They're serious arguments. Indeed, we have a couple of uh, colleagues here in the Department of Government at Dartmouth who are very articulate, smart articulates, uh, smart, uh, uh, articulate proponents, uh, advocates of a smaller U.S. global role. And so we've been debating these guys in the hallways, at the water cooler, you know, for years before we finally, Steve and I, decide to, to, to write this book and to do the research to see whether we agree. And, uh, and one of their big arguments is this idea of free writing. The idea that if we support the defense of allies, they face an incentive to accept that defense and not pony up. And the reason I argued in that talk in Ottawa that it's emotional, in part, is because the question of whether it makes sense for us to to, to subsidize the security of our allies is whether it's good for us. Is it? Are we better off helping them or not? Right. And whether they or not they do as much as we would like is not as important as whether we, Americans, are better off if we help them if we don't help them. And what we basically argue in the book is we find that actually we're better off even if they don't contribute as much of their defense as we wish they would. We're still better off doing it. And so the question Americans should ask themselves is, Do I, am I more secure, am I more prosperous, is my are my freedoms better protected if I'm doing this and I'm not doing it, and whether or not they pony up is a question of you know you feel, you, it makes you feel bad, you feel exploited, you feel as if you're taking, being taken advantage of, and we're, at, we're we're suggesting at the end of the day what really matters is whether you're better off or not.
1: Right. I know in that in that speech, a quote you had was the power to prevent things from happening is harder to observe and therefore more taken for granted than the power to make things happen.
0: Yeah, so strategy, you can think of two sides of it. One aspect is trying to get other states or actors to do what you want, um, and we see a lot of that today in the news. President Trump is trying to get the Chinese to help us more on North Korea. President Trump is trying to get our allies to spend more. He's trying to do positive things. and You'll notice a lot of times uh, it doesn't work. You know, I hope it works, but sometimes it doesn't. And if we only measure power by what we can get others to do, we're missing the other side of power and the other uh, purpose of strategy, which is to prevent people from doing things that we don't want them to do. And what we find in the book, after all these five years of research and intensive engagement with all the relevant scholarship, is that mostly what U.S. strategy is about is preventing a worse, more dangerous, less hospitable world from emerging. And on that metric, these alliances, these commitments, these global uh, engagements that the United States has, by and large, with some exceptions, do in fact, we can show, help prevent a considerably more dangerous world from emerging. So the success, uh, the the we, we 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 when we focus only on the positive aspect, we will underrate, we will we will we will miss uh, many of the benefits of the strategy.
1: Right, and I know another thing you mentioned that I I found interesting was in the argument that our current situation with NATO or allies is perhaps unfair to us as far as us taking over the burden. You mentioned the idea of proportionality, especially when it comes to casualties proportional to the population. Um, could you like expand on that? I think, what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, we had here at uh, Dartmouth uh, a couple of years ago, General, uh, General Mattis,
0: who's now the Secretary of Defense. General Mattis, you know, we were He was asked in some talk about, hey, what about these allies? And he goes, well, you know, it can be reduced to a pretty simple equation. I'd rather fight in Afghanistan with 40,000 allied troops than with zero allied troops. But when we look at some of those contributions to Afghanistan from some pretty, you know, nations that are much smaller than ours, actually the casualty rate as a percentage of populations in some cases is higher because we're a pretty big country with 320 million people. Um, And so Canada, and uh, Estonia, and uh, some of these smaller countries, if you look at the proportion of the casualties to the size of the population, actually they took more. And in addition to that, a lot of times our allies do some post-conflict reconstruction. They get involved after we go in and uh, knock stuff down. In some cases, they help put it back together. That was pretty uh, evident, especially back in the 1990s with the Yugoslav uh, interventions, where we really did, the U.S., really was, took the lion's share of the military kinetic operations. But then in the years since, the EU has spent gazillions of euros and deployed police officers and judges and civil society and all sorts of stuff that doesn't make headlines. So uh, that contribution is pretty big. It just doesn't draw the same attention as a massive kinetic deployment does.
1: Right, and that's something that I think about because when I'm deployed as a Marine to Afghanistan in 2010, you're underneath a NATO ISAF umbrella. That is the way the war and the commands are structured. So I even have a NATO ISAF ribbon it's a, or a medal. I mean it's that's how the war structured. And when you get generals over there, whether it's Petraeus or Dunford or people to take over the wars – They command the NATO forces. They're not just commanding, when they're the top dog, they're commanding all NATO forces. So this is still, even just structurally, how we look at fighting wars. And I don't know if the common, everyday American realizes the importance that NATO plays. I know I brought to you another talk. I think there's this frustration or or misconception sometimes amongst Americans that working with allies, or even, even doing foreign aid isn't fair. And I've been on the hill trying to campaign before for a larger State Department budget, because General Mattis, the one you spoke of, I'm not directly quoting him, but he said something to the effect of, if you fail to properly fund state, you'll have to buy me more bullets, more ammunition. And I think that's true, because a lot of the times, diplomacy and state can go in solve problems without shedding blood. Before, before having to have military action and in fact military action costs us a lot more and that's usually the argument you hear against foreign aid is you know this global agenda of foreign aid that you know I don't want to give two hundred thousand dollars to Pakistan when I don't have a job and sometimes i think that can be frustrating because to me it shows like a like a misunderstanding of how the budget works and really a misunderstanding of like at the in the big picture how foreign policy works it's not that cut and dry it's not that if we don't give Pakistan two hundred thousand dollars, we'll put it in your pocket. Um do you think there's a way to make this idea more palatable to Americans that are kinda of disenfranchised of globalization, that think that we should pull back? Is there a way to
0: I think uh, my my guess is, uh, and it's not just a guess, but from talking to my friends and colleagues who are not in this world, they're not academics, they're not uh, they're not uh, in uh, daily th- life thinking about uh, international uh, politics. I think a lot of them would be reassured if we did have a kind of top to down, top to bottom analysis of this. I think we, uh, of. The degree to which you're right. I mean, I, I, most people involved in the U.S. foreign aid business and in the diplomacy side of American foreign, po- uh, Americans' national security policy in, this, in the State Department and elsewhere believe what you just said. And in fact, they are pretty hard headed people. I mean, most of the people I meet in this world are not I mean, they're kind of global do gooders, but they're basically American national interest people. They know they're hired by the American people. Their job is to go out and make things better for us, also better for the world, but better for us. So they they're, they're kind of don't think they're just doing. Uh, Charity—they think they're helping America—but at the end of the day, if it, I think if I were in Peoria or I were in Sheboygan or I were in uh, in, in Tuscaloosa and I'm 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 out of a job, yeah, I'd, or I'm paying high taxes, I'd think about it. Now, of course, it's a tiny part of the budget. So I think the government owes its citizens you know, a, a, a thoroughgoing analysis of this stuff. Is it really working? Right. And if some of it isn't, then we need to rethink it. So I do think people should be reassured. At the end of the day, though, I think, A, it's important for people to understand it's a very, very tiny proportion of our budget. And B, everyone who's doing it, and there are a lot of people who are doing it with a lot of thought, a lot of effort. They're not dumb people. They really think they're helping America out in the way that you're talking. About and basically, now I've had here over at Dartmouth really since 2001. A, a, not a huge, but a, I'd say, couple of handfuls of my Mm -hmm. students who've gone off into the United States military and gone off and served. And everyone who went to Iraq in particular Mm -hmm. came back with the same view as General Mattis, which is we were doing stuff over there that we shouldn't. It really should have been in the civilian, uh, civilian wheelhouse. They've just got the military doing some things that. Just don't make any sense, and uh, and so they really, really reinforce that message. I think if more of those veterans or people with that experience could make that case across communities in, in the United States, I think that might that might resonate with people.
1: I think that's a good point you bring up as far as having students that have gone and deployed overseas to the war zones, and they come back with that important perspective. I know in your talk on your book, you 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 mentioned the idea like in order to keep going with deep engagement, to keep deeply engaged in the world and globalization. Do we need, or is it necessary, to keep these type of long-term counterinsurgencies going? Or What is the role of counterinsurgency operations in trying to keep deep engagement in the current climate?
0: I think that's a key, that's getting back to that key distinction between trying to make things happen and trying to prevent bad things from happening. If we're going to focus our strategy on, on, but frankly, be on the defense, basically say, we want the world not to get a hell of a lot worse. If we're thinking of it like that, we can, uh, I think, safely uh, de emphasize uh, nation building and long, long uh, counterinsurgencies of the type that we've experienced really since 2003, all basically nonstop. And I think you see that in Washington, you see that in top command echelons. People are extremely wary about getting pulled into a commitment that could transform itself into another one of these very long. Now, there are some serious downsides to leaving massive civilian, uh, um, massive civil wars and uh, humanitarian crises unattended to, like we see in Syria. Refugees come out, you know, ungoverned spaces are presented for potential terrorist networks. Uh, space is created for things like ISIS, so it's not, it's, it's, it's easier said than done to keep out of it, but I think that we can maintain the core of this strategy that's done very well for us for the last 70 years and at the same time avoid some of the most costly kind of commitments. I make a, and in the book I think, we make an analogy to the Cold War, where for the first half of the Cold War, basically Korea-Vietnam, we basically thought we'd be fighting these wars, and basically after Vietnam, the cost and the devastating cost of that war, the U.S. decided, you know what? We can, pers- we can pursue, pers- uh, pr- prosecute our strategy in the Cold War relying on other methods than massive overseas deployments. And those included things, some of them not particularly nice, like covert ops and aiding other countries. Building up regional uh, allies of the U.S. to take on some of those tasks, and we prosecuted the entire rest of the Cold War from 1975 on without fighting another such war. I hope that a similar kind of approach can be applied to the current era, which says essentially: think not once, not twice, but ten times before contemplating anything on the scale that we did in Iraq.
1: Right. Yeah. I think. Well, you would hope that we learned our lessons. I wonder. Do you see parallels between the war in Vietnam? And that was it became a counterinsurgency, and the lessons we learned there. do you think that we've had to kind of repeat and learn those lessons again in the current wars at this at a high, you know high cost of blood and treasure? Do you think we sometimes don't learn our lessons very well?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. That's a little far from the from 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 the book and from from my real area of academic research. Here I rely on uh, colleagues who have done extensive studies of of counterinsurgency, and it's really, it's not a really, it's not a simple neat answer, because there have been, uh, the US um, military, the United States government has shown a capacity to learn and to adapt, Um, but it is, uh, it's a painful and slow process. And we do, I know it's such an old chestnut of a claim, we're always fighting the last war. But many people are now worried that if the United States Armed Forces are fully configured or fully fo- or too focused on the counterinsurgency mission, you know, the next thing's going to be something more conventional and we'll be we'll be all in kind of, you know, eating soup with a knife and, and we won't be ready <laughs> to take on like a first world or a, or, a, or a non-developing world adversary. So I think a lot of people in Washington are thinking this through. So I hope we don't make the opposite mistake and perfect our coin, counterinsurgency, and then the next contingency is something different.
1: Right. Yeah, this is, this is an interesting, and on my end, you know, you mentioned that, and it's it's something you, interesting when you talk about military members having to fulfill roles that they're usually not used to fulfilling. So in your training, you're doing, for me, I trained for Iraq. I trained for room clearing and, and well, that's pretty much it, urban combat. And then I got to Afghanistan and zero, I mean, it's not urban. Well, where I was at zero urban. It's over terrain, cuts, valleys, draws, hills, and it's more old. What well, you think of like old school type of? Uh, combat and mm-hmm. so just on top of not being trained really and how to run a municipality <laughs> where it's also like I was just like I trained all my time I'm not saying we did zero time doing some of these things but the bulk of our time was clearing rooms and I cleared zero rooms because not a whole lot of rooms to clear and rule yeah. there's like you go to a compound there's one two rooms in the hut and that's pretty much, that's pretty much it in your book you talk about like two constants that are going to stay with us and I think it's kind of like the, you know, the central theme of your book. And is America's position in the national system? Is their preeminent power going to last, I guess, through the century? And we have a choice to stay deeply engaged in the world, and are we going to stay deeply engaged in the world? Is, do you see those two constants as something that's going to hold as time goes on?
0: Yeah, so those have been two constants since the end of the Second World War. The United States is sort of the premier global power, uh, capable of pursuing this global grand strategy, Uh, that involves the world's most uh, elaborate, most ramified, and strongest uh, alliance security network that's ever been created. Um, and the second piece has been um, this choice to maintain the deep engagement in, in international politics. And a lot of people question both, and that's what the book is really an answer to. Many people today are questioning both, both, both constants. I mean, and these are constants. When I say these are constants, just to interrupt myself for a second, when I say these are constants, is that the world, everyone pretty much, with except for some fairly elderly people, the, 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 the world we've grown up in is, is shaped by these huge realities. And many people think that they're changing, and they think the United States no longer will be capable of pers- of pursuing such a policy. Uh, it will be eclipsed, or at least matched, by China, if not others. And secondly, they think that, well, even if we could stay uh, the, the as powerful as we've been, we shouldn't remain so deeply engaged. The domestic politics of it are going to change, That so we're going to pull back from the world. And we argue that on both counts, uh, this is probably wrong. Uh, that is to say, we, we do a deep dive in the d- analysis of America's power position in the world. Uh, so that's the whole first third to 40% of the book is a very numbers-driven attempt to really measure how we, sta- how we stack up against a bunch of rising powers, especially China. And we answer the question there, for decades at least, it's only going to be the United States that's capable of playing a global superpower role. So then, the rest of the question is: Should we continue to play the global superpower role? And that's the debate we started out with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I I observe that there was a moment uh, during this campaign uh, for the presidency, and in the first uh, weeks of this new presidency, when it seemed like you know uh, the idea of really pulling back and pursuing, if not isolation, it's just a much more kind of self you know restrained, homeward focused course. That probability seemed higher, I think, than it's ever seemed since 1950. Um, now I think we're seeing um, more uh, uh, fewer, fewer such signals, although there's still an argument coming from this administration, which is a totally understandable one, that we need to really work hard on our allies to get them to pony up more. And who, could, who, could, who, who, would, who would say no to that if we can get it? But, uh, but I do think that the push towards kind of really rethinking the U.S. global role coming from Washington has declined somewhat. However, I would say that voter base is still there. A lot of people right. that resonated with – when Trump went on the campaign trail and made these comments, it resonated with a lot of Americans like it's time to come home. And so I don't think this argument is going away. So it's an important argument to engage.
1: You mentioned a few times how this, this policy of the, the trend of globalization we've had has kind of been about since World War II. And you mentioned in your book kind of the, a bit of the history of that and how the era of the Great Depression – and our countries, if you call like isolationism, are kind of step back from the world. Perhaps created a vacuum that allowed political extremism to kind of rise around the world. And and there's also you add in the effects of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff and things like that. So from those lessons after World War II, we decided to become more and get constantly engaged in the world. Do you feel like some of those lessons? From history, from the pre-war two days, are are wearing off, or perhaps we've forgotten those, and that we should, could it would do us a good service to re-examine why we started this course in the first place.
0: I do. I think they are wearing off because they are taken for granted. the uh, The effect of the U.S. role in the world is just part of reality, such that we just internalize it and think it's normal. We forget that actually, it's anything but normal. It's the result of a conscious strategy. And, um, you know, people who travel, if you like going to other countries, you know, you can travel almost anywhere in the world. There's, you know, there's, there's not major wars between major powers uh, around the world. There are uh, there's only uh, uh, nine declared nuclear states, not 30 or 40 nuclear states. Um, all of these things could be radically different. And in fact, the balance of scholarship argues would be very different if the United States. Were again to precipitously pull back. The other thing to bear in mind that, that your, your your question was getting at was the, it was the connection between international security, war and peace, military commitments, alliances on the one hand, and economics uh, on the other hand. So security on the one hand and economics on the other hand. And one of the big lessons that the founding fathers of American grand strategy—Truman, Atchison, Kennan—all of these people back in the 1940s and 50s—what they understood was these things are connected that if you don't have uh, security, you can not have prosperity. And if you don't have prosperity, stuff can happen that can make you a lot less secure. And that was the big story of the 1930s. Uh, the United States was was, was pulled back. Uh, we were unable to, basically what we wanted to do, What, what, what the, the way to avoid World War II would have been to um, allow France to make some concessions to Germany so that Germany would feel less victimized. France turned around and said we can't make concessions to Germany unless you help us with our security because we're afraid of them. And then when they turned to Washington and said can you help us with our security we said no way we're coming home. That precluded a deal which might have quite honestly, might have led to a, d- a different history where World War II didn't happen. So, the, but, the, but the bottom line is, the one thing where I do push back against some of the language coming from the current administration is this idea that we can negotiate economic treaties over here, and we can push hard on that, and we can do this over here uh, regarding our allies and our security commitments, and that the two aren't connected. The key lesson of the you're referring to, and the key lesson that had been learned and imbibed
1: by the founding fathers of U.S. grand strategy, was that those two things are deeply connected. Right. And since that time, we've – since World War II, we've existed in a unipolar world where the United States is usually the dominant power. Now, the Cold War, we were obviously in a power struggle with with the Soviet Union. I think in your book you argue that even with that, they still could not quite reach the level – the the full level of the United States. And, and what, is it, what do you kind of mean by that? Well, the Soviet
0: Union was a very formidable power. Its power was predominantly in the form of military land power. They had the world's uh, largest uh, armored force, a force that, though it took a lot of casualties to do it, 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 it basically was the main force that defeated the German Wehrmacht, which itself was the most effective, most formidable um, uh, armored force the world's ever seen and so that was a serious thing and and by the way that huge Soviet military machine was sitting right in the middle of Eurasia which meant it could potentially intimidate threaten in the extremist conquer uh, core regions in East Asia and Europe that form the essence of the global balance of power. That's why the United States felt, well, we can't, we we, we, we we ourselves would be threatened if that were to happen. Therefore, we have to bolster these fringes of Eurasia to prevent them from coming under the sway of the Soviet Union. However, that military power the Soviet Union created, it did through basically a force-draft kind of uh, command-style economy, which never became Uh, productive, never became as innovative as the Western economies did. Such that by the latter part of the Cold War, uh, you know, the Soviet Union's economy is measuring maybe 40% the size of the U.S. at best. And the U.S. and its allies are dominating, uh, the Soviet Union and its allies, in terms not only of raw GDP, but in terms of innovation, new technology and uh, the 1980s witnessed the U.S. Intentionally to leverage well, 70s and 80s the U.S. attempted to leverage that technological advantage by presenting the Soviet Union with a whole set of new tech, military technological challenges. And that challenge just proved too much for the Soviet Union. At the end of the day, they tried to reform to kind of meet that challenge, but that reform precipitated their own uh, collapse. So they were always an asymmetric challenge. They were challenged mainly in the military area. Partly in the early Cold War, they were challenged in the ideological area, which an era in which communism was still an appealing ideology. But by the end of the Cold War, uh, on all of the key dimensions there, uh, capacity to challenge
1: had receded. And so if we carry this forward the Soviet Union collapsed, now we have Putin's Russia, we have rising China. Do you think the US interposition has tumbled to a point where we might see a multipolar world start to exist with, you know with countries like China and Russia? can can compete with the U.S. And in that explanation, I know you have used the 1 plus X model, and could you kind of explain that as well?
0: That means if we just think, how many superpowers are there going to be? Uh, we now know we have one. I think pretty much everyone in the world, we could, we could get Xi Jinping of China, we could get Vladimir Putin from Russia in this room, and I think they would probably admit that really, there's only one actual global superpower, and that is the United States of America. I don't think they would disagree with this. The question is, how long will that last? Will we have a world where there's no superpowers, and just a lot of countries that are big, great, important powers, but not superpowers? Or will there be more than one superpower? And essentially, our book concludes that just based on the technological, economic, Military organizational capacities uh, engaged. We're not going to see more than one superpower. The United States is the only one that's got the potential uh, for the next several decades. It just takes a long time to build up this kind of capacity. And uh, so, and by superpower, just to be clear, we mean a country that has the capacity uh, to sustain complicated and credible alliance systems in multiple regions simultaneously. And that entails the country controlling, by and large, or dominating the commons, the global commons, that's the oceans and the skies and space, and then having that logistical capacity and that alliance network that allows you to exercise power in these distant regions. You know, again, American citizens are just used to the fact that the United States, if it wishes, can get military power almost anywhere in the world. It's the only state in the world that can do that. Russia is operating now. I can't remember exactly how far it is. Maybe 600 miles from the Russian border in uh, Syria, and so. Uh, but uh, that uh, that uh, deployment is uh, a small one uh, for Russia. It is they've carefully kept it under control, and it has required uh, actually some a little some shenanigans on the logistical front to be able to transship stuff. Luckily, they Turkey gave them overflight rights. And so, uh, their capacity to do an operation like that much further away is highly constrained. And certainly constrained if the United States were to oppose it. Right. Whereas for the United States, it can get its stuff close to, not right up to, but close to the borders of pretty much any country. Can't get all the way in because we have this thing called A2AD. Uh, anti-access, air denials uh, 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 technology on the part of many powers, but especially Russia and China, which means we can't get too close without serious problems. But we can get close almost anywhere, and no other power can do that. And not only that, our book shows no power is going to be able to do that, uh, aside from the United States, for several decades to come.
1: So that being said, a lot of these arguments that Russia and China and people will compute the U.S., in your book and you still and still believe that they just won't ever quite rise to level for a lot of the reasons you listed to, to completely compete with the u.s so i really think that's a huge i mean you're in this field so you can tell me better but a huge strain of american thought is we're on we're on the decline and i think you even cited a, you cited a pew research poll from 2013 in your book that says like 53 percent say the u.s plays a less important powerful role than it did a decade ago so there's definitely over half of Americans think that we play this diminished somewhat diminished role compared to the past.
0: Well, I actually do think that's true though. I don't I wouldn't push back too hard on that because in the 1990s certainly, the United States really had an extraordinarily uh, dominant position because China and Russia were really China was still uh, China was still on its upswing. It was rising, but it has been 20 years. Since then, that it has continued to rise and has become much more capable. And in the 1990s, Russia was really on its knees. It was barely able to function as a state. And in that setting, uh, the United States' relative advantages were just so extraordinarily dominant. And I think we kind of started getting used to it, such that we could sail aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Strait. We could, we could, we could, we could. Probably bring we could probably command the airspace over even highly developed allies, and that kind of thing, that kind of world, uh, wasn't going to last. And so I think the Americans who answered that answer that Pew poll, seeing a relative U.S. decline from what the the 90s from the immediate post Cold War period, I think that's probably right. But that does not mean that we have declined so far and so uh, precipitously that the U.S. is no longer capable of performing this global role that it has been
1: performing for the low of these 70 years. All right. So I want to kind of transition to some things that Trump said during the campaign and compared to what he said now in regards to our NATO involvement. The Washington Post, he said, and I quote, NATO is costing us a fortune. And yes, we're protecting Europe with NATO, but we're spending a lot of money. Number one, I think the distribution of cost has to be changed. I think NATO as a concept is good, but it is not as good as, as it was when it first evolved. And then the next quote was in ABC in March 2016. He said, I think NATO's obsolete. NATO was done at a time when you had the Soviet Union, which is obviously larger, much larger than Russia is today. I'm not saying Russia is not a threat, but we have other threats. We have the threat of terrorism. And NATO doesn't discuss terrorism. NATO not meant for terrorism. So you have those two things. That's what Kanye said in the past. Then April 12th of this year, 2017, after he met the Secretary General, President Trump said, and I quote, the Secretary General and I had a productive conversation about what more NATO can do in the fight against terrorism. I complained about that a long time ago, and they made a change. Now they do fight terrorism. I said it was obsolete. It's no longer obsolete. So, uh, interesting. Do you... Do you see are just this I mean you're obviously be guessing, do you think President Trump is finally coming around to seeing the merits of NATO? It's interesting they he said that they're not fighting terrorism. They have been fighting terrorism since terrorism's been a, an issue from the, you know.
0: Yeah, all Trump has his the style. You know, he has his own <laughs> style and I think we're we're all getting used to it. And so right. I think I, I, I no longer freak out uh, and get uh, you know I have blue smoke coming out of my, ear, out of my ears all the time because he, he has a style. We can debate it in another context. But in this context, when we're talking about international politics, I'd say this is partially right. He's right on the point that NATO really is dis, our European allies have over have just disinvested in the military to a damaging degree. For themselves and they don't they recognize it <clears throat> they just have i mean britain is just shaving its military dramatically and they are our They've long been and are most capable allies, uh, but the Germans have uh, not spent. And moreover, within the uh, within the European uh, allies, they don't they don't optimize their spending because they still, despite being in an alliance, they still will purchase inefficiently on the basis of national militaries rather than pooling their resources more. So he's got a legitimate argument. By the way, every American president. and Every secretary of state has always made these arguments, but if he is capable through his, shall we say, uh, unusual governance style of getting them to do more, that would be awesome. The other p- point, as you said, is just incorrect. The NATO has been deeply involved in terrorism. One of the great things about these alliances is an alliance is a network. It is it can be repurposed as the circumstances change. And when the Cold War ended, you know, NATO did go through a floundering in the 1990s, kind of, what do we do? We had NATO expansion, whose my, main purpose was to provide security for those Central European, formerly Soviet-controlled states, and so that they could democratize and feel secure. And that seems to have been largely successful. There's some there's some uh, f- uh, uh, falling back that we could discuss. But when 9-11 happened, we picked up the phone and we called over the NATO. It's like, all right, we had an intelligence sharing network in NATO that had to do with other things. Let's repurpose that thing for terrorism. And it was immediately repurposed for terrorism. And anyone involved in the intelligence side of counter-terror will tell you that hugely valuable information was shared on that network. Had that network not already existed on September 10th, it wouldn't have been there to pick up on September 11th, 2001. So I don't agree with him then on the obsolete front. But I think it's fair to agree with him on the on the defense effort front of our allies. They have been scaling back, and I think now, thanks in part to Vladimir Putin's aggressive behavior, they are uh, they are t- they are taking measures. Uh, uh, certainly, in the planning stage and in the budgeting stage, it's looking like we're going to see an uptick and a larger number of allies uh, passing or approaching that two percent threshold.
1: I want to give a little bit of a teaser. I hope you will come back and, and talk with. Talk with me, and we'll focus perhaps more on Russian foreign policy, because I think well I'm in that class with you, and I find it fascinating. Um, so as a teaser into that that talk, we talked in class the other day about how Vladimir Putin was, a, I think, the first global leader to call President George W. Bush after the terrorist attacks on 9/11. And that's something you know likes to be emphasized, and there was this. Kind relationship, a bromance, if you will, between George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin for a while, and it deteriorated. Without getting too much into this, what was the initial like impetus for the like degradation of that relationship? Why did the bromance end?
0: Well, the big thing that brought it to an end was Iraq, because at the end of the day, um, uh, the Russians just were uh, adamantly opposed, as were several of our key allies, namely uh, the Federal Republic of Germany and France, uh, to the U.S. Uh, uh, invasion of Iraq in 2003 without the Security Council resolution. They refused to support a U.N. Security Council resolution, and they, were, they ultimately were opposed. Although in the lead-up to the war, they were sufficiently... Uh, uh, um, uh, 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 close to the United States and their strategic perfe- perspectives, to agree that we needed to get Saddam Hussein to try to disarm, they were willing. They actually agreed to one of the resolutions, and so they were kind of on board with a kind of coercive diplomacy approach. They could, probably could have survived. They could probably that bromance if, you, bromance, if you want to call it, <laughs> maybe would have survived if uh, if we hadn't. Gone the extra mile and actually insisted on the regime change because the French and the Russians both thought we were kind of getting what we wanted. They were seeing uh, they were seeing um, Iraqi uh, uh, efforts to comply with the UN's demands regarding their weapons, and they were very suspicious of the regime change idea. And so that was the final nail, uh, in some sense, in the in the in the coffin of the Bush, uh, Putin. Uh, relationship. It had actually begun to sour even before that. The Russians claim it's because the U.S. was kind of um, unforthcoming and refused to make any kind of uh, concessions on key issues that Russia cared about, like NATO expansion, and the anti-ballistic missile treaty that the U.S. unilaterally abrogated because it wanted to build missile defenses. And, and, um, and, but from the American side, they claim that the Russians are just... you. you basically, if you talk to American officials who deal with Russia, they, it's a very difficult partner, they claim. It's very secretive. Uh, it continued to aid with military and intelligence assets. Um, countries that the U.S. regarded as uh, geopolitical adversaries, like Iran. It wasn't as cooperative as we, the U.S., had hoped. So on both sides, there's a story about why this broke down. And indeed, if you look at U.S.-Russian relations, that's kind of been the story ever since the end of the Cold War with constant efforts to kind of get it going and the term reboot the relationship is sometimes used and then it always falls apart and each side always has its own narrative about why it, it has done, done so. But it's useful to remember that there was a lot of quite useful cooperation between the two sides in that year after 9-11 and that although it was never perfect, um, uh, many Americans attest, uh, many American officials who were involved attest to have uh, gotten uh, quite useful cooperation.
1: Well, thank you, sir. I, th- I, hope, I think that's a good teaser and to hope it will be a interesting podcast next time. I want to thank Professor William Wolf- Wolfworth for joining me today. He is the author of America Abroad, the United States Global Role in the 21st Century. And if someone wants to pick up your book, where do they go to purchase it?
0: You know, Amazon's got it. And uh, maybe
1: not your local bookstore, but it's Oxford University Press and it's on Amazon and it's at quite reasonably priced. Sounds, sounds good well thank you sir and thank you for joining us and with that you've been listening to the greenside podcast